0: Hey everyone, it's Jenna, and this week we are bringing you an interview that I recorded earlier this year with L.A. Kaufman, who is a longtime organizer and author of the book, How to Read a Protest. The book traces the lineage of protest movements in the U.S., starting with the 1963 March on Washington. In this conversation, we dive into that history and talk about some of the things that go into making a successful protest. Like a lot of things in life, there is way more going on at these protests than what meets the eye. No Michael or Chris on this episode, but if you are looking for more from them on the role of protest in a democracy, I recommend checking out our episodes with civil rights leader Joyce Ladner and with Serja Popovic of Serbia's Otpor movement. You can find links to both of those episodes in the show notes. I learned a lot from this conversation with L.A. and from her book, and I, I think you will too. Two pieces of housekeeping before we get to the interview. We are starting production on our new season of Democracy Works and we'll be back with new episodes in a few weeks. If there's anyone you think we should be talking to or a topic you think we should be covering, we would love to hear your suggestions. You can visit our website, democracyworkspodcast.com, and submit the form to contact us or leave us a voicemail. Either way, we'd love to hear from you. And finally, we are in the running for a 2019 People's Choice Podcast Award. We won uh, one of these awards last year and would love to keep the momentum going this year. So if you have a chance, please head to podcastawards.com and nominate Democracy Works in the government and organization. Category. The nomination period runs until July 31st. So that's it for the housekeeping. Uh, thanks again for listening and please enjoy my conversation with L.A. Kaufman. L.A. Kaufman, thanks for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks so much for having me. Your book, How to Read a Protest, traces the history of protest movements starting with the 1963 March on Washington. And protests are often thought of as a hallmark of democratic dissent. But in reading about the 63 March in your book, it seems that it wasn't organized in a very democratic way, nor were there many opportunities for dissent within the the movement. So I'm wondering how that march came about and what made it the movement that subsequent protests have been compared to ever since?
1: Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I always like to say as a framing comment before I dive in is that there are many, many different kinds of protests and they don't all work the same way. And a lot of the work that I do in some ways is protest literacy. There there are more Americans taking part in protests um, now than at any point in the past. Um, So many millions have uh, marched and rallied since Donald Trump took office that it it dwarfs uh, even the height of the the Vietnam era. And yet people tend to lump them all together um, and not really understand that there's many different kinds of protests um, with many different functions um, within the broader context of social movements. So this book um, and the 63 March uh, is, a, is about a particular kind of protest um, a, above all, um, which are mass mobilizations where huge numbers of people come together out in the streets. And the 63 March on Washington, um, whatever um, dim ideas you might have of protest in American past, it actually was the first one. Uh, which, which surprised me as I, although I'm a long time organizer, I hadn't quite realized that before 1963, we never had anything on this scale um, in American history. Um, uh, the 63 March ended up bringing 250,000 people. So that was a, a unique organizing challenge to bring that. I mean, there had been parades like the, you know, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. There had been large public gatherings, but they hadn't been protests. And this was the first time it happened, and there was an enormous amount of fear surrounding the event. Um, A lot of that fear, um, uh, blatantly racist fear of large numbers of Black Americans um, converging in one place at one time, and the certainty, the racist certainty that there would be violence and rioting if that happened. Um, So, as you were suggesting with your question, Uh, One of the ways that the organizers compensated for those fears was um, by kind of going on overdrive with an organizing model. They had already they already were operating from a pretty top down controlled organizing model that came out of the old left. Um, And then they um, they reacted to the fears of disorder and unruliness um by controlling every aspect of the march in a way um that as someone I've I've uh, I, I I was the, the mobilizing coordinator for some of the largest marches um that have happened since some of the marches in two thousand three and two thousand and four. And it's extraordinary what they did in sixty three. They they um you couldn't bring your own signs. Um, you couldn't have your own slogans, and they actually had people who surrounded you and took away your messages if you if, if you did, um, which, uh, you know, as you say, we think of this as a high water point of American democracy, um, and yet the messages were so controlled, there was no room for individual voice there.
0: There were certainly no shortage of things that happened before 1963 that could have sparked something like this. What was it about that moment that was a tipping point? And why do you think we didn't see something on this larger scale happen sooner?
1: Well, this was a very, very daring thing to do. I mean, there had been suffrage parades. Um, there was... Um, during world War two um the, the kind of predecessor of the sixty three march on Washington was a march that never happened um, but that was threatened um, It was a civil rights march um, that uh forced the 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 threat of which forced FDR's hand and uh, led him um to uh desegregate uh the armed forces and um ban uh, discrimination by military racial discrimination by military contractors which was a major advance at the time um but it uh you know the the um the the, the scale of of protests before this were 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 some you know typically more like the largest ones were more like 25,000 or 50,000 people um i think no one had dreamed um uh before the event where dr king gave the i have a dream speech um of of bringing together these huge numbers of people. And then we've seen, uh, you know, once this practice started, it was repeated again and again and again. Um, you know, I went back, one of the things I have um, in in the book are I have several charts about um, the largest protests in American history viewed through different criteria. Um, some are the largest protests in D.C., some are the largest single events, um, and one chart is about the largest days of protest all around the U.S., um, but, you know, what, once this model was established, it really caught on and you saw movement after movement um, trying to replicate the success of the March on Washington by bringing huge numbers of people and sort of like once that, uh, that barrier to, to seeing this tactic as, um, as manageable and not, not, a, not a fearsome thing was broken, um, it became a, a model that everyone wanted to emulate.
0: There was also a great deal of compromise necessary to make the 63 March happen. Um, can you talk about some of those compromises and how the various groups organizing the march work together?
1: Well, the, the very first idea of the 63 March on Washington was it was going to not just be a march, but it was also going to be an occasion for nonviolent civil disobedience. And it was going to represent a, a real um, tactical escalation. And those plans got dropped almost immediately as soon as the organizers um, began negotiating with the with the Kennedy administration. Um, The Kennedy administration was walking a very complicated line because um, they didn't want I mean, they didn't they they very clearly did not want the march to happen. And then once the march was clearly going to happen, whether they agreed to it or not, um, they did everything they could to control it. Um, and part of that was by trying to but by, by by orchestrating the the choreography of it so that it didn't actually um they changed the march route so that the march never went past the White House or the capitol. There are no pictures from the sixty three March where you see crowds of marchers and a building that represents. One of the targets of the protests in the background, you know, there are only, it was staged, so it was kind of against the backdrop of these grand symbols of American democracy, like it's the, um, you know, like the culmination of the pledge of democracy, as opposed to a protest against inaction by the president and Congress, um, either of whom could have been taking much more substantial action than they were at that moment on civil rights.
0: You know, I can't help but think of what's happened more recently with the women's marches and some of the differences that have emerged between the groups involved with organizing those events. Do you think that we're in a better place now where groups that do have different perspectives can express their opinions as opposed to everyone trying to speak with one voice, as was the case in the 60s?
1: There was more disunity behind the scenes in the 63 March than than the mythology would lead you to believe. I mean, there wasn't open, you know, there weren't open divisions and, and splits among the players, but there were definitely very um, substantial differences of opinion about strategy and direction for the movement and a lot of internal tension. Um, you know, sometimes those things are stay behind the scenes and sometimes they split out in the open. Um, uh, but I think that, that the, 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 um, the model of a, um, a single unified coalition that, um, you know, that we think of and associate with the 63 March, there are moments when, when we return to that model over and over again. But a lot of the, the way in which movements have unfolded in the decades since has been much more of a networked model, more decentralized, um, where people come together or converge at different moments. Um, but there's not uh, the same emphasis on unity, um, unity in a sing, you know in the singular sense. We have a movement of many movements as opposed to. The idea that we all need to be under one single tent, and so when I look at what happened, um, you know, with the women's marches, the most recent round, the now the third iteration of the women's marches, um, you know, my my takeaway after you know all the coverage that was expended on the controversies around the the national leadership and the and the handful of of breakaway local marches. My takeaway really um, is the resilience of the grassroots and the resilience of um, there there were more than 300 local events around the country, which I think is quite extraordinary three years on and shows how much um, a movement that has many leaders and many organizing centers um, can persist in ways that maybe are hard for the national media to see and perceive but that have very powerful effects when it comes to things like uh, organizing get-out-the-vote operations in the midterm elections.
0: You also spend a lot of time in your book talking about the signs that people bring to protests. What can we learn about a protest from those signs that people bring? Yeah,
1: well, the the moment that first got me working on this book was when I attended the 2017 Women's March in D.C., and um you know it was this incredible uh, you know outpouring that was that so outstripped the organizing resources on the ground that it wasn't a march really at all it was just a flood of 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 women and allies everywhere and having been to I, i can't even count how many protests i've been to um in my you know 35 years as a as an organizer and journalist and i was immediately struck that there was a far higher percentage of homemade signs at the women's marches than I had ever seen before. And so, um, and then I discovered the detail that I alluded to earlier about the 63 March, that whatever we may think of it, um, and whatever, however many ways it may represent a high point of American democracy. Um, in this one interesting respect, in the messaging, it was a moment of total control because all of the signs were produced by the organizers and you could not bring your own slogan um, to that march. You could make your own sign with one of their pre-approved slogans, but they didn't really encourage it. They really wanted that uniform look and feel. And so um, I explore a lot in this book um, the relationship between the, what what a protest looks like and how it came together, and um, the ways in which these pre-printed signs, um, well, sometimes sometimes what they do is they reveal to you, um, you know, an organization that has uh, a close relationship to its members, um, and so its members feel close identification and want to carry those signs to show, you know, they belong to the ACLU or the NAACP or or you know whoever it is. And sometimes it just means they have a printing budget and money to hand out a bunch of signs to people who don't really have any connection to them, right? It can be very difficult to tell um, just looking at it. Um, I think of it as it's like a sign that gets you to to ask questions. Um, but with those with those handmade signs at the 2017 women's marches, what I really saw. Happening, There wasn't ever a memo that went out that told women to do that, just as there wasn't a memo that went out that told people to organize in their communities all over the country. It was a thing that really spread virally. And there was a way in which after the shock of the election um, and the fear and the depression that so many um, uh, of those who would go on to march in women's marches were feeling, it was like a, it was a, it was a very literal reclaiming of voice to make your own sign with your own view on this, uh, you know, uh, uh, calamitous moment in American history. Uh, on it, and there, there was such a power in that, and there was such a way in which, what, what, what people did at those first round of marches. Um, they weren't putting pressure on the Trump administration per se. They were finding each other. It was a moment for people to come together in the streets and feel a sense of community, engage in a political conversation. All those signs amounted to like a rich political conversation in the streets and feel a sense of collective power, um, which in turn made possible the resistance organizing we've seen since.
0: Yeah, and the signs also serve as a way for the protest to live on through social media and other channels. But it also, I think, calls into question how genuine people's motivations are in attending a protest. A cynic might say that people are only showing up so they have a photo to post on Instagram and show their friends that they were there. Um, Do you have a sense of what people's motivations are based on your experience as an organizer? To whatever
1: extent we're living in a time where you, you know, you get like social and cultural uh, points for showing yourself at a protest. I mean, that's great. Uh, but I don't know that I don't know that people go because they're going to get Facebook likes, you know, from posting a picture of themselves. Um, I think um, I think uh, I think people do sometimes go to protests with unrealistic ideas of what they'll accomplish by going. And um, and that are um, that are fed by I don't know, mass media myths about protest um, that, that tend to 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 think to, to frame protests as short term pressure tactics um, when that's often not how they work. So I think sometimes what happens is people come to a protest and they, you know, have some idea. Uh, they're, they're drawn because they want to take action. Um, But then they have an expectation that uh, just turning out once in large numbers is going to bring change. And, you know, those of us who have been in the trenches for a long time know that, um, you know, any any protest, however large, is usually just one step in an unfolding process of change. And you rarely see decision makers shift or change um, based on one event. Um, it's usually uh, a very long and protracted process to create change, and oftentimes um, what these larger mobilizations do more than anything else um, is is sustain movement morale and momentum. So they're less pressure tactics than they are movement building tactics. You know, so from that sense, if people you know um, go and they feel good enough about being there that that's part of how they're going to present themselves to the world on, on their social media feeds as a person who participates in a protest, I don't see that as um, as a hollow or meaningless gesture. The question that I always ask about any of these, these um, forms of political action is what do they build to? So, you know, do the people who went to the march and posted their picture on social media, are they then more likely to pick up the phone and make a phone call to their member of Congress? Those are the questions that always really uh, interest me is the extent, because I think these mass, these mass gatherings, um, uh, because they the the their their significance is in an unfolding process part of to me how i gauge their effectiveness is how much likelier were people to go on and take additional action afterwards than they might have been if they hadn't gone
0: the other thing that we hear uh, about protests a lot is that they don't really mean anything, which you argue is a narrative pushed by those in power who want to discredit the protesters and maintain the status quo. What does that effort look like and how can people who want to be involved in protests push back against it?
1: Absolutely. there. I mean, there is a dominant discourse that tells us that protest doesn't work. Um, which, you know, very effectively discourages people from participating in protests because they feel it's pointless. Um, And the 63 March plays a a very interesting role in this discourse. There's a wonderful book um, that came out last year called A More Beautiful and Terrible History um, by the political scientist Jean Theo Harris um, that looks at the subtitle is, I believe the, the uses and abuses of civil rights history. And she looks um, at how, you know, uh, various iconic events and figures um, of the civil rights movement, including the 63 March, have been used um, in this uh, insidious way to kind of um, chastise and demoralize subsequent movements. There's a way in which um, that 63 March, um, without wanting to take away from its true importance, we can say it's been enshrined in myth to such a degree that there's, you know, there's pretty much no real world event that could ever feel as hallowed and sanctified as that event has been. So there's a way in which um, it gets held up as this shining example um, that makes everything else feel small and inconsequential in comparison. Um, People are always really surprised when I tell them that, that there's, um, more people taking part in protests now than there were in the height of the Vietnam era. Because there again, we have this myth. We have these ideas about these events that have been made larger than life. You know, the protests at the 68 Democratic Convention, the number of protesters was in the a few thousands. It was very small compared to many things that had happened before or since. But in the glare of the TV cameras and in the way it's been, you know, retold in history, it becomes magnified. And that magnification um, makes us uh, not quite able to see the actual scale of contemporary efforts um, the way that we otherwise might.
0: We talk a lot on this show about the hard work of democracy, and organizing seems to be squarely within that realm. Um, What goes into organizing a large protest, and how do the people involved deal with burnout?
1: Right. I mean, people do it out of a sense of hope, um, out of a sense that, um, it can make a difference. Um, I, you know, I always use Rebecca Solnit's distinction between optimism and hope, where optimism is the sort of starry idea that everything's going to be okay. Um, as opposed to hope, which is the idea that, um, by taking action, we can make things better than they otherwise would be. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a sense of, uh, of, of, Hope that that gets engaged. But, you know, those of us who've been doing this um, for a very long time uh, have that sense of hope um, tempered by realism and by the the understanding that, um, you know, victories are hard to come by. It takes a long time. You're going to lose many times before you win. Um, Sometimes um, you don't make any progress at all. Um, or you, or you don't see the progress that you're making for, for years and years. Um, you know, I think about the folks who, um, fought so hard, um, uh, during the, the height of the AIDS epidemic, um, and, uh, didn't know what we know now, that their actions would end up saving millions of lives, you know, what it was like to keep fighting, um, despite that. Um, So, you know, the movements themselves um, always uh, come in cycles. They have periods of growth and decline. And uh, it's very easy for people to get burned out um, if they don't have that longer view that makes them um, – you know first of all not not overdo in the short term uh uh pace themselves in terms of their level of involvement, but also recognize um you know that uh you know as King put it the arc of justice is the arc of history is long uh you know it takes a long it takes a very long time um to uh, uh, with many reversals and setbacks to make change, and you have to um, believe in your heart that taking action is the only hope to make it, uh, to make it real. Um, you know, that was, that's what has to sustain you over the long time, long-term, because it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be riches, rewards, uh, you know, material gain, and it's, and it's not going to be an immediate sense of progress in most cases.
0: And finally, where do things go from here? Are there things that today's organizers can maybe learn from the past?
1: Well, I think that the that the thousands of resistance groups that um, came out of you know that 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 early period of the Trump presidency, most most of which are affiliated with Indivisible, not all of them, um, you know, will continue doing work. Um, their uh, the the you know the impact of that work on the midterms was extraordinary, and what the open question now is how are we writ large uh, sort of the opposition or resistance writ large um going to build upon the um the, the the new um footholds that we have with this new congress um in order to uh galvanize more grassroots response You know, we saw, I think, a solid turnout for the women's marches. Um, The energy levels were not as high as they were two years ago. You wouldn't expect them to be. Um, uh, uh, But uh, the real question for me is whether we're going to see a new upsurge as we build on these new openings.
0: We will leave it there. L.A. Kaufman, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Works.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.